Well, good morning. I am blessed with the advantage of having uh, the service schedule here in front of me. And I don't know if you caught this or not, but I just love the theme of our uh, congregational singing this morning. It was all about seeing Jesus face to face. And uh, from the choir singing, when we all get to heaven one day, what a great day that's going to be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and we'll shout the victory. And from there, we sang, Jesus is coming again when we see Christ. Uh, One day I'll see him face to face and sing and tell the story saved by grace. I don't know if you caught that, but of course we finished it with the chorus we sang just a moment ago. And if you're going to see Jesus face to face, it's because he saved your soul. And we said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. What a beautiful morning God has given to us. All of it has been such a blessing and an encouragement to my heart. I hope you picked up a copy of the bulletin on your way in this morning. There's several things in here, and we won't cover all of these. We'll touch on some of these at the end of the service this morning. But I do want to highlight that a week from today, we begin what we call our Fall Revival And uh, perhaps maybe you're a little bit newer, and uh, you're not exactly sure what exactly is a revival. And a revival is uh, what it says it is. We're trying to uh, breathe some spiritual life back into uh, those who perhaps maybe have found uh, the, the, the life that uh, they found in Christ maybe is a little bit challenging in recent days. Maybe uh, there could be a number of reasons for that. And so we spend some time emphasizing how to get close to the Lord. And uh, you'll notice that our guest is on the back of that flyer. Uh, Dr. John Getch is an evangelist, has traveled and preached in churches like ours for more than 40 years. And you will be blessed and you'll be helped by his preaching. He'll preach next Sunday morning at 1015. And then he'll preach on Sunday night at 6 o'clock. And then he'll preach Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 7 o'clock p.m. He'll preach to our Christian school young people. Uh, during the morning, and uh, mon- Monday through Wednesday morning. And, uh, and we, we want to encourage our entire church family just to really uh, mark your calendar and try to be here for that and to make the sacrifice that is, that is necessary. Uh, I, I think that the truth of the matter is, is probably, probably most of us uh, could participate in something like that if we just determined that we were going to do it. Now, if you, if you work during the evening hours, then obviously you, you can't participate in something like that. But if you're off, it might require a little extra effort on your part, but I want to encourage you to be here. And uh, we, we, uh, we wouldn't plan a meeting like this if we didn't feel like it was necessary, and if we didn't feel like it'd be worth your time. And so I hope that you'll make plans to join us for that. And then I also want to call to your attention also this uh, little insert has our, um, has our notes for this morning and tonight, and we'd encourage you to take those out. And we are taking our Bibles and going to John chapter number 6. John chapter number 6. We have on Sunday morning since the beginning of the summer months, uh, we have been preaching a series that we've entitled The Great Chapters of the Bible. And of course, this is a subjective list. Uh, this is a list that I think of, you know, there's not, an official, there's not an official list of great chapters of the Bible. It's sort of just whatever you might think is a great chapter. And so we might happen on a chapter that you think, well, I don't know, that's what quite should belong there, or, you know, and if that's where it needs to be. But that's the advantage of being the pastor. I get to choose what I think are the great chapters of the Bible. If you ever pastor your own church and you preach a series like this, you might choose some different chapters than I choose, and that's okay as well. Uh, the truth is, every chapter in the Bible is great. And if we were to preach great chapters of the Bible, we preach all the way through, we'd have a sermon series that'd be 1,189 chapters. 
Some of you, you'd never make it to the end of that series. You'd be with the Lord already. So we're just, we're just kind of, you know, well, that truth of the matter is all of us probably be with the Lord by that point in time. But uh, we're, we're here in John chapter number six today, and I want to call to your attention uh, what I think is really one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. And when we get into it, I think you'll understand why I view it in this way. Look in John chapter number six, if you would. We'll begin reading in verse number one. And we'll read down a little ways here in this chapter. The Bible says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh or near. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, He saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and Two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. I want to preach to you a message I've entitled this morning, A Feast for 5,000, a feast for 5,000. Father, would you bless the time that we have given to you today, Lord, the folks that have come, that are sitting in the pew, they have given this time to you, believing, Lord, that you might have a message for them. And uh, Lord, as we've opened your word and as we've studied this text and this passage this week, we do believe that you have a message for your people this morning. And so we pray, dear God, that you would Uh, Lord, reveal that message to each and every one of us. Uh, Lord, I am uh, the one who's been given the responsibility to convey that message, but I am well aware that the message is not of me. It does not come from me. These people have not come to hear me. They have come to hear from you. And so, Lord, I yield myself to you, and I ask, Lord, that you would speak through me. Lord, we pray that as we come to the end of our time, here in just a few moments, that each of us will have been helped, encouraged and strengthened, and that if there's a specific decision that you would be leading us to make, that we would be humble enough to acknowledge that, and maybe even to do so in a public manner. Maybe that there's someone here today that is lost that needs to be saved. May they be saved today before this service comes to a conclusion. Lord, others that perhaps need to make other decisions, and some that maybe won't come forward, but you'll be dealing with them very thoroughly and very completely there in their own seat, and may they Take what they learn here and use it throughout this day and throughout the week uh, to come. Lord, bless our church, we pray, and help us during these few moments that we have together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You know, one of the things that that differentiated Christ and his ministry from other religious rulers and leaders was the miracles that he was responsible for during his earthly ministry. 
these miracles really were what led uh, to a growing curiosity in the hearts and minds of many people about just who this Jesus was. Could it be, could it be that he really is who he claims to be? Could it be that he really is the Messiah, the Son of God? In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we were in John chapter number three, and we'll discover that there was a religious ruler there, a leader of the Jews, a man by the name of Nicodemus, and he came to Jesus by night, and here's why he came to Jesus. He tells him in John chapter three and verse number two, he says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. And here's how we know that. He said, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. To paraphrase, here's what Nicodemus is saying. Nicodemus is saying, listen, we know, we know there's something different about you based on the power that is displayed through these miracles that you're doing. Uh, the miracles were, uh, were, a, were a phenomenal uh, presentation to a, uh, an audience that probably would have been shut off to what he was saying, except for the fact that he had ability to do things that most normal people could not do. In fact, during Jesus' earthly ministry, did you know that he raised three people from the dead? He, he, he raised a widow's son from the dead. He raised a, 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 a man by the name of Jairus, his daughter. She was 12 years old. He raised her from the dead. And he raised a, a man from the dead. His name was Lazarus. And he was, you know, there is, no, there is no level of death. But Lazarus had been buried for four days already. When Jesus walked into that graveyard and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And they rolled the stone away and Lazarus came marching out of that grave, still in his grave clothes, and he was given new life through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did he raise three people from the dead, but he healed countless lepers and those who were diseased and those who were sick. He opened blind eyes and deaf ears and he loosed tongues that could not communicate properly. He restored to cripples the ability to walk. But can I tell you that his miracles transcended beyond even just the human body to feature power over nature as well. He quieted, he quieted a raging storm. He walked on the water of the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> he turned water to wine. And in our text, as we read it just a moment ago, he took five loaves of bread and two small fishes and he fed. He fed 5,000 people with those simple little elements. Christ's miracle working power transformed in John 6 an insignificant amount of food into a feast for 5,000 people. Now I have done a fair amount of event planning in my life. You see, for 14 years I was a youth pastor and when you're a youth pastor, you're really nothing more than a glorified event planner. I mean, that's pretty much what you do. You're planning events and activities. You're trying to get young people to intermingle with each other and, uh, and, and to get them into wholesome environments. And because, because you're working with young people, most of you know this, young people like to eat, don't they? I mean, they like to eat. A, well, what are we talking about? Adults like to eat as well, right? And there's not a person in here that doesn't like a good meal. And so it, it felt like to me for, uh, for a long time that I was nothing more than just an event planner. And I can assure you that a great deal of work goes into feeding large groups. I mean, it, it, it takes a lot of effort to feed 50 people, 30 people, even 20 people. And if it takes a lot of effort to feed that many people, can you imagine what goes in? What goes into a feast 
for 5,000 people at one time. I'm thinking of questions that you would, that you would think about if you're planning something like, like that, like, like this. What are we going to serve? Uh, where, where are we going to serve them? Where are they all going to sit and eat? Uh, what are the decorations going to be? And how much is it going to cost? And will they, will they like what is being served? And, and will we have enough people to serve everybody? And will we have enough uh, of, of the elements? We don't want to run out of any food. And, and we don't want to uh, make this a miserable experience. I mean, the questions go on and on when it comes to feeding a large group of, of 50 or 100 or 250 or 500. And can you imagine what you're thinking about if we're talking about feeding 5,000 people at one time. I suppose maybe this is part of why this miracle is so impressive and why it stands out to us. It seems that Christ's ability to feed these folks is, is really effortless. I mean, there, 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 doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of uh, forethought put into it, and, and it seems as if everybody is receiving the food around the same time, and they're all enjoying it together, and, and they all seem to enjoy what is being served, and, and, uh, and they're happy, and they're content, and, and, uh, and, and I mean, everything just seems to go sm- so smoothly, and if you've ever planned even a little kid's birthday party, you know how hard that can be. And how challenging that can be to, to feed everyone and for the food to be served properly and for it to taste good and, and for there to be enough for everybody to be able to enjoy. I mean, it just seems like this massive undertaking is of no problem whatsoever to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is feeding of 5,000 with five loaves and two small fishes, one of, if not his best known of all miracles. And it's recorded for us here in John chapter 6, making this what I believe to be one of the great chapters in the Bible. And I want to see if we can learn some things from Christ's feeding or this feast that he provides for 5,000 people. There's several several things that I want to highlight from this particular passage of Scripture. Number one, I want to say this. I I believe we learn from this feast for 5,000, this thought, that, that is this. Christ takes interest in the physical needs of people. I believe we learn from this story that Jesus himself, who is God, that Christ takes interest in the physical needs of people. Now look in verse number five. The Bible says, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus had no responsibility to feed these people? And yet he's taking upon himself uh, the burden of, uh, of, of feeding all of these people. You see, Jesus hadn't forced these people to come. He, they, they were under no pretense or no uh, obligation to be fed during this meeting. It wasn't like they had passed out a bunch of, uh, of flyers that said, hey, come hear Jesus preach, and while you're there, you're going to receive a delicious meal as well. None of that happened, and yet Jesus is looking at this great congregation of people. He's looking at all of the multitudes, and he's thinking to himself, you know, this is, this, is, this is something that I can do. This is a responsibility that I am willing to take upon myself. Uh, where are we going to get enough money? And where are we going to get the food that is necessary that we might? And that's the question he's asking to Philip. Jesus is taking an interest in the physical needs of the people that are in front of him. Now, as preachers, we often, as, as a pastor, I often want to emphasize the spiritual ahead of the physical. And I think, I think that first and foremost, we need to emphasize the spiritual head of the physical. 
You see, these people were coming, and what were they coming for? They weren't coming to be fed physically. They were coming to be fed spiritually. And you can rest assured that they were fed spiritually because they're standing in front of them and teaching them is, is the very word of God himself. The savior of the world, the Messiah, the son of God, uh, he who the, uh, the writers of old had prophesied about is standing in front of them. He is teaching them. He is preaching them. So you can rest assured that they were fed spiritually. But I want you to understand that while the spiritual is more important and of greater interest to the Lord, let us not lose sight of, of, the, of his interest, of God's interest in the physical needs of his people. As our creator, Jesus has instilled in us certain needs, hasn't he? Uh, I'm thinking to myself that we as, as, as human beings, we have a need for rest. We need rest. I hope that you got a good night's sleep last night. I woke up about 2.30 in the morning to thunder and I had a hard time falling back asleep. You know, you wake up in the middle of the night, the older you get, there's more things going through your mind. And I thought to myself, Lord, you, you gotta get me back to sleep because I gotta preach to a bunch of people tomorrow. Lord, would you help me? And he enabled me. He enabled me to fall back asleep last night and, and, uh, and to sleep until my alarm went off. But you need, you need rest. You need rest. You, you, you are not wired or designed to go days on end with just minimal amounts of sleep. And, and, uh, and, and you need to get some rest. You need nourishment. You need uh, some food in your body. You need fluids. Uh, you, you need protection, shelter from uh, the elements outside. Did you, know, did you know that even as a human being, you need community? You need people. My wife and I were, uh, were visiting a city uh, a little while ago, city of Philadelphia, and we happened upon an old fortress type of a building. We discovered that it was, a, uh, it was an old prison that's no longer in use. It's called the Eastern State Penitentiary. Some of you maybe have been there before. And so uh, we, we thought, well, you know, we've got some extra time. Let's, let's go. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. But some of you probably have been there before. Wow, slip of the tongue. How am I ever going to get back on track? I don't know. So anyways, we purchased some tickets and we went into the Eastern State Penitentiary and as we were traveling through this old abandoned prison that some of you would know quite well, um, we discovered the, the tour guide was, was, was explaining some things to us and the Eastern State Penitentiary had this philosophy of rehabilitation for prisoners. And here was, here was their idea. Their idea was solitary confinement. And honestly, this goes back 100, 150 years. And they said, here's what rehabs someone who's, whose heart is set to do evil is, is, is getting them into a position where they're not around anybody else. And if we'll put them in a prison cell by themselves for about 10 years and they can't have any other interaction or any other, uh, uh, any other fellowship with other human beings, well, then they'll emerge out of this prison and they'll be good to go. And do you know what they discovered? They discovered that the exact opposite is true. That because they were not having any interaction, any fellowship, the reality was that they were going crazy. They were going insane. Why? Why? Because God has designed, listen, Christ has designed within us the need for community. That's why, uh, that's why church is so important. Now, that's why you know, living among other people and, 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 and doing life with other people is so vital and is so very important. So you have the need for, uh, for community. You have the need for companionship. God said about Adam in Genesis chapter number two, it is not good that the man should be alone. 
So what did God do? God created and helped meet for him. God gave him a bride. He gave him a wife. And so understand these are some of the needs that you and I have as people. And can I say that while you and I have a personal responsibility in most cases to look after these needs on our own, I want you to understand that he is interested in these and that he longs for you to have these needs met in your own life. God cares about the physical needs of people. Now, can I say that the Lord can meet, um, he can meet these needs in a miraculous, divine way. But can I also say that he often uses his servants, I'm talking about the church, to provide and care for the physical needs of others. Without taking the time to turn there, I remind you of what the Bible says in James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. James is writing, he says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? You know what he's saying? He's saying, if you, if you come upon someone who is really struggling, and they're naked, and they don't have a proper clothing, and they don't uh, have their belly filled, and, and, and they're cold, and they're hungry, and you walk up to them, and you say, hey, God bless you, I, I, be warmed and filled, but you don't do anything to help them. He says, what profit does that do? Those are just empty words. And I'm just simply saying, listen, that God, and, and you know what I find here in that James chapter number two, that he, say, he uses these two qualifying words. He says, if a brother or a sister you know, the truth of the matter is, is that the church is under obligation first and foremost to meet the needs of its own people. There's community here, brothers and sisters. And I find that, you know, there's a lot of people that look at church as, as just a, you know, a charitable organization. I can call them and they'll pay my bills and they'll take care of my needs. And, they'll, and, and I, I just want you to know, we, we do the best that we can. Obviously, we cannot take upon us uh, the needs of the entire community. But here's what we can potentially do. We can look after the needs of those who are part of this fellowship, our other brothers and sisters. And you know how God oftentimes meets those needs? He meets those needs through people who are here, who are sensitive to God's leading. If you want to be, listen, if you want to be like your Savior, Jesus Christ, then don't you suppose you ought to look around you and say, hey, even though it's not necessarily my personal responsibility, what can I do to meet the needs of those who are struggling and those who are hurting? Why? Because Christ takes interest in the physical needs of people. But notice, secondly, we discover in our text this, that a need is just another opportunity for Christ to display his power. A need in your life, a need in my life, a need in our church or in our community. Listen, it is, here's what it is. It is just another opportunity for Christ to display his power. Now in verses six and seven, we find that Christ submits the question to Philip. And he does so not so that Philip can get to work on solving the problem, but so he could see the need existed and then could see how Christ is going to solve it with his miraculous power. In other words, in verse number six, when he says to Philip, uh, or verse number five, he says to Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? He's not saying, hey, Philip, I need your help. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, Philip, put your thinking cap on. Let's figure out how we're gonna feed all of these people. No, in fact, the Bible tells us in verse number six why he asked Philip this question. Look at verse number six. And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. And you know what we learn from this? We learn from this that a need is just another opportunity for Christ to display his power. In other words, I think sometimes we look at needs and we look at trials and we look at burdens maybe in a wrong way. 
Sometimes we look at those things and we want nothing to do with them. In other words, a burden begins to come into our life, a trial or a difficulty comes into our life. And what we want to do is we want to play hot potato with the thing. We don't want to hold on to it. We want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. But you know what we need to do is we need to look at burdens. We need to look at needs. Instead of saying, Lord, get this out of my hand as quick as possible, we've got to hold on to those and say, Lord, what are you going to teach me in this? Lord, what are you going to show me in this? Because here's what I know. I know this, that a need is just another opportunity for you to display your mighty power. And Lord, I don't know how long I have to hold on to this need. I don't know how long I have to hold on to this burden, but here's what I do know. I do know that when I come to the other side of this thing, I am going to have an incredible story of how you displayed your miraculous and divine power in my life. There's another story not too far removed from this one in John chapter number 9. And in John chapter number nine, something sort of similar unfolded. Jesus and his disciples, they encountered a man who was born blind. And you know what his disciples asked? They asked this question in, in verse number two. They said, Master or Lord Jesus, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, can you imagine asking a question like that? Uh, I, I don't think we think that way anymore. At least I hope we don't think that way anymore. But they literally were under the impression that, that this man had been blind his whole life because his parents must have done something really, really bad. Or, or maybe, maybe he, he did something really, really bad, and that's why God was cursing him because he was allowing him to be born blind. That was the premise of the question that they're asking. Jesus' own disciples were asking that question. You know what I discovered? I discovered that sometimes even God's people can ask really dumb questions. Uh, really hurt. They can say some hurtful things. Have you discovered that? I have. Here's, here's how I know that to be true, because I'm one of God's people, and sometimes I say some really dumb things. And sometimes I even ask some really hurtful things and, and really hurtful questions. And, and that's what's happening here. They said, Master, look at this guy over here. He's blind. Can you imagine if he's standing within earshot? I don't know if he was or not, but can you imagine if he's standing there, and he's already feeling down about his life and how difficult he has it, and now all of a sudden his disciples are saying, Lord, surely his parents must have done something horrible, or he did something horrible that he was born this way. And you know what Jesus' response was? In verse number three, Jesus said these words. He said, neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. Now, don't, don't get all messed up on that. He's not saying that they, 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 they were sinless. He's just saying their sin is not responsible for why he was born blind. He said, neither hath this man sinned, or his parents, that he, was, that he was born this way. He said this, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that this man was born blind for this very moment in time. He was born blind so that, so that he would have an opportunity to meet me and be healed. What I want to say is, listen, we should stop looking at our needs as obstacles and disappointments, and rather we should start looking at them as opportunities for Christ to display his power in our lives. Every challenge that comes my way in life is another opportunity for me to see God work, and when he does, when he does, it always, always grows my faith. I want you to consider a few additional thoughts underneath this particular point. I want you to notice, first of all, that a trial, listen, a trial can be a proving ground to reveal our faith. Now look what he says in verse number six. He says, and this he said to prove him. Do you, do you, know, do you know why they had entered in this time where there's 5,000 people that needed to be fed and there was, there was hardly any bread to feed them with and why Jesus is confronting uh, Philip with this question? Is he, listen, here's why all of this is happening. He simply wants to hear what Philip is going to say. That's what this is all about. This is a proving ground. And I wonder, I wonder if sometimes God doesn't bring trials into our lives just simply to see how we're going to respond. 
I wonder if maybe, if maybe he's listening to what we have to say as we enter into a period of trial. That's a convicting thought because I know, I know that I have entered into some trials and I thought to myself, well, this just stinks. I hate this. And I don't want to be a part of this. Lord, would you just get this thing out of my life? Or maybe I've even gone so far as to say, Lord, I don't deserve this. Imagine how disappointed he is. If he's bringing a trial into my life just as a proving ground to reveal my faith. That's what he's doing. That's what he was doing here for Philip. This he said to prove him. Sometimes a a trial comes into our lives to simply reveal what our reaction, our response is going to be that trial. Jesus had already proven, hadn't he? that he had miracle working power. According to verse number two of this very text, the Bible says that a great multitude followed him. Why? Because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Well, listen, if the great multitude is following him for that, don't you suppose his disciples had been, had been eyewitnesses to some of those things as well? In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, Philip, Philip, why don't you, why don't you just give this problem back to me and why don't you just reveal your faith and see what I can do with this trial, with this problem that we're dealing with? I just, I just re- remind you that Philip should have responded with faith and confidence. Uh, Lord, Lord, I don't know where we're going to find enough food, but here's what I know. I know that if you're here, if you're here, this problem can be taken care of. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know, I don't know how you're going to do it, but Lord, I have confidence in you. Can I also say this, that we discover from this text, this thought that I think is so comforting and and, and fills us with such hope, and that is this, that God is never uncertain during your moment, during my moment of uncertainty. Look at at the end of verse number six. Philip's looking around saying, I don't know what we're going to do. Lord, why'd you ask me? Lord, how how are we going to find enough food to take care of all of these people? And look what Jesus says, or look what the Bible tells us about Jesus, what he's thinking. For he himself knew what he would do. Isn't that encouraging? To know that when you and I are wringing our hands together and we're fretting and we're we're falling on our face before God and we're saying, God, I don't know how you're going to work and I don't know how you're going to change these circumstances and I don't know how you're going to turn these things around. Lord, I'm scared to death. And when you and I are faced with moments of great uncertainty, hey, listen, you can rest easy because there is a God in heaven who is not uncertain at all. He already knows. Listen, he already knows what he's going to do. Some of you, you walked into this room this morning with an incredible burden in your heart and in your life. And you've been wrestling with this burden maybe, maybe for weeks, maybe for months, maybe even for years. And you thought to yourself, I don't know if this burden's ever going to be lifted. I don't know why God brought this into my life. I don't know why I find myself where I find myself. And why can't I ever get out from underneath this thing? And I just want you to know, during your moments of great uncertainty, there is a God in heaven who is sitting on the throne. And he already knows what he's going to do. Isn't that encouraging? It's encouraging to know that God is never uncertain in our moments of great uncertainty. See, see, Philip's looking around and he's saying, he's saying, Lord, if we had so much money, you know, I don't even know if that would take care of things. And God already, Christ already knew there's a little boy in this crowd. There's, all, there's a lad here and he's got some provisions on him and I'm gonna take those few meager provisions and I'm gonna use those things to feed this entire congregation. I wanna I want consider a third thought underneath this particular point, and I wanna just say this. Listen, you need to understand that some trials, some trials cannot be done away with financially. There are some trials, listen, that visit our lives, that come into our lives. Now listen, there, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of money that you could throw at it to get it to go away. 
Would you look in verse number seven? Look at Philip's response. Here it is. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. You know, Philip's saying, Philip's saying, Lord, even if we had a ton of money, which we don't, Lord, even if we had a ton of money, we, with that ton of money, with the size of this crowd, it would not be sufficient for everybody just to have a little sample, just to have a little nibble, just to have a little bite. Lord, 200 penny worth of bread, it's just simply not sufficient for everyone to have a little. You know, we're conditioned, aren't we, to think that if we have enough money, if we throw enough money at some of our problems, then they'll just go away. That, that's sort of how we think. And we, we, some, of us, some of us are sitting here and we're feeling pretty comfortable on this Sunday morning because we're thinking to ourselves, you know what, I'm not too worried about too much because here's how much money I have in my savings account. And, and here's, how my, how my, here's some of my assets that if I were to find myself in a real bind, I could sell some of my houses, I could sell my boat, I could sell my, you know, my, uh, my fancy car, I, uh, I could do this, I could do that. Uh, boy, retirement's looking really good. I'm just a couple of years away, and I'm feeling really comfortable with where my retirement is. And I, I, just, I just feel like my life is all set up, and I'm in a really, really good place. And I just want to remind you that there are certain trials that you can't throw enough money at to get them to go away. And that's where Philip... And the disciples, and really Jesus, find themselves in this text. They gave all them. Listen, listen. They could have had. They could have Could have had enough money to feed all of these people. But let me ask you this question: Is there was there a market or a store anywhere within the radius that would be something that they could travel in which there would be enough bread to feed them all to begin with? I mean, you just think about it. We, 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 we think about certain events in which you're you know, maybe getting some food catered. And, and, uh, and, and I mean, man, you, you got to call well in advance because they don't just keep that much food on hand. Can you imagine, can you imagine if Philip had enough money and he, and he waltzed down to the local market and he went to the bread maker and he said, listen, I'll take enough bread to feed 5,000. And that guy said, there's not 5,000 that live within 10 miles. I, I haven't had enough bread to feed 5,000 in my lifetime. See, see, it wasn't just the fact that there wasn't enough money. There weren't even enough provisions to be able to take care of this need. And Philip is acknowledging this. He's realizing, hey, this is a big, big problem. Well, I guess what I'm saying is this. We must learn to trust more in Christ's power and his limitless supply than we do in our bank accounts than we do in our 401ks, than we do in our credit card limits, because you and I, all of us, will inevitably arrive at a trial that cannot be overcome or done away with financially. And some of you have been there. Listen, you don't have enough money to, to take cancer away. You don't, have, you don't have enough money. You don't have enough money to get your child to quit living a rebellious life. It doesn't work that way. No, those things, those things cannot be secured with money. You, you don't, listen, you can't pay. You can't pay enough money to heal a broken heart. That, that's something, listen, that's something that you can only trust the Lord with. Some trials cannot be done away with financially. As we come to verses eight and nine, we discover another incredible thought about, uh, about trials and what God does in, in this feast for 5,000. And that is this, number three, we say this, God rarely works according to what makes the most sense. You know what I've discovered in my life? I've discovered that when I come into a, into a difficult moment in life, and I'm sitting here going, okay, here's the problem, and here's what I start to do. I start to think, okay, I bet I know how God's gonna solve this. And I start thinking, okay, you know, this is, he's gonna do this or he's gonna do that. And you know, what my, you know what my experience has been? And my experience isn't everything, but I, I, I've, I've experienced this enough times to know that God rarely works the way that I think he's going to work. In verses eight and nine, we discover the, 
solution to the story begins to come into, into, into view. And yet, as it does, the disciples are sitting here going, this is not the solution. There's no way. Look in verse number eight. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, say to him, there's a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? I mean, they've identified the solution, but there's not a single, there's not a single one of those men that are sitting here saying, this is the one right here. This is what God's gonna do. No, no, they're looking, at the, they're looking at this little boy and they're looking at his meager supply and they're saying, this is not what it is. Philip's saying, you know, maybe we had a little bit more money and Andrew's saying, well, here's a, you know, here's a little kid over here who's got some things, but, but, but he really doesn't have anything for, for us. And my experience has been that when needs are presented, we often assume God's gonna take care of them and we sometimes even begin to assume how he's going to take care of them. And I've discovered God rarely works to meet my needs according to, to what I think he's going to do. And there's, and there's a Bible reason for that, and, and that Bible reason's found in Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine, where the Bible says these words, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know what you and I need to understand? We understand that, listen, God does not think the way we think. See, see we, we, all we know is the way that we think, right? I mean, that's just part of who we are. It's part of our nature. And I want you to know something. God doesn't think the way that you think. He doesn't think the way I think. And when we come into trials, we assume, okay, well, here's how God's gonna take care of this. And oftentimes, God either doesn't take care of it the way we think he's going to, or maybe he doesn't even take care of it at all for a moment. He allows us to stay in that. And we're sitting here going, God, what are you doing? Why are you waiting so long? Sort of like Mary and Martha. Lord, if you would have come, my brother would not have died. God rarely works. God rarely works according to what makes the most sense. Here's what, here's what we find from our text. He, num, number one is this. He uses people that I don't think he can use. Did you know that about our Savior? That he uses people that I don't think he's ever going to use. That's so true, isn't it? Some of you, some of you, as you sit in this room this morning, you're sitting here and you're, uh, you're sitting in a pew and you're sitting here going, I can't believe he's standing up there preaching. I can't believe it. Because I've been around here for a long time. I'm 43 years old. I was born and raised in this church. Some of you taught me in Sunday school. Some of you taught me in Christian school. Uh, some of you, you had to discipline me. You had to get after me for running around the halls or for doing something stupid. And you, you, you thought, you thought for a long time, God's never gonna use him. And you know what? You should have been right because I was a knucklehead. And to be very honest with you, in some respects, I look at myself now and I feel like I still am. I mean, I, I, I sometimes, I think I get more things wrong than I get right. It's part of human nature, right? And you know what we think? We think God, God's never gonna use that person. You know, I, I alluded to the fact that I worked with young people for 14 years. And you know what I discovered? I discovered oftentimes the kids that I thought were gonna do the most once they graduated from high school did the least. And the kids that I thought were gonna do the least, that kid's not going anywhere. That kid, that kid can't get out of his own way. I mean, he is defiant and he is rebellious and he, you know, he gives me headaches and problems and, and sometimes I almost wish that he was in another youth group, you know? One of those types of things. You know what I discovered? I discovered sometimes that kid, he graduates and, and he begins to put it all together and God begins to work in his life and you know what? I'm, 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 I'm discovering that sometimes I don't know what I'm talking about because God sometimes he uses people that we think he's not gonna use. I'm thinking to myself, these disciples are probably looking around the crowd and they're saying, who's, who's the oldest here? Who looks like they have the most money? 
Uh, who looks like they have the most resources? Let's see if we can go to them and see if they've got anything to help us with. Hey, you know, we're taking up a little collection. 200 penny worth is probably not going to cut it, so you're going to have to get more than 200 penny worth. Can you help us? And all of a sudden, here comes this little boy, and he's standing there, and he's saying, well, maybe I can help. And they're looking at him saying, you can't help us. You're just a kid. You're just a little lad. Who are you? Oftentimes, that's the way that we're, we're wired, that, uh, that God is never going to use this person or that person. You know what I love? I love when God brings new people into our church. And here's what I love. I love dreaming and thinking to myself, you know, their life is maybe a little bit messy right now, but listen, if they'll yield their life to the Lord, and if they'll obey him, and if they'll submit to him, and if they'll just, they'll just be patient and we'll be patient with them, think about where you could be five years from now. Think about where you can be 10 years from now. Here's why. Because God uses people that we think he's never going to use. And oftentimes that includes ourselves. Some of you, you're sitting in the room today and you're sitting here going, you know, I come to church, but God, God can't really use me. I mean, is he really, can he really take my life and do something significant or something special with it? And I, what, I, what I'm going to tell you is, listen, if he could use this little boy in the story, he can certainly use you. He uses, he uses people I don't think he's going to use. And then I'd say this, he uses things I don't think he can use. Not only does he use people that I don't think he can use, but he also uses things that I don't think he can use. You, you see, the, the thing is identical. The boy is identical. There's a lad here, and, 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 and that's, the, that's the person we don't think he can use. And then he has some things on him, but we don't think you can use these either. And there's a lad here, and what does he have? He has five barley loaves and two small fishes. Now, some of you are sitting here and thinking, okay, loaves of bread. And when we think of a loaf of bread, we think of like, you know, some massive loaf of bread. You know, some bread boy back in the years gone by carrying those loaves under his arm and selling them. And I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that that's what he's carrying around. Because ask, ask yourself this question, why would one, one young man have, have five loaves of bread? Now, maybe his grandma fed him. Maybe she was the one that sent him that day with the food. And, and she would, grandmas would do something like that, but moms would never do something like that. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, my, my mom, you know, she would, she would use this excuse for why we couldn't have a freshly baked chocolate chip cookie. She would say, you can't have that right now. It will spoil your dinner. And I'm sitting here going, I'd like to try. And I'd like to see if this thing could spoil my dinner. I'm pretty sure it can't spoil my dinner. And I'm thinking if his mom sent him out the door with five massive loaves of bread, and, and you know, some of you are fishermen, and you like to tell your stories about, you know, the, the size of the fish that you caught. And I have a feeling these, the Bible says that these fish were small. And of course, in, 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 with a fisherman, you know, small becomes big in a, in a hurry, right? It was the biggest fish I ever caught in my life. But I'm guessing that this was a pretty meager little meal. It was so meager, it was so meager that even Andrew... Who brought, who brought his brother, the apostle Peter, who became one of the great apostles in the Bible. You know what Andrew said about this meal? He said, but what are these among so many? Here's, here's, what, we, here's what we understand. God, God likes to use things that we don't think he can use. Just as he likes to use people that we think he can't use. And we ask the question, well, why does he do this? He gives us the answer in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. In verse number 26, he said, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. So God tells us what he uses. And then right there, right there he gives us the reason why God does these things. God says, you know, why, you know why I don't use mighty things? 
You know why I don't use wise things? You know why I don't use noble things? Instead, I use things that are weak and things that are despised and things that are considered insignificant. He says, I'll tell you why. That no flesh should glory in his presence. If they were to identify a millionaire in that crowd that day, and that millionaire said, hey, listen, listen, I've got enough money to feed everybody. Here, here, let me give you all the money I've got. And then they were to go down to the market, and they were happen to find a baker that have enough bread to feed 5,000 people. Those two guys would have been heralded in the story. The guy that provided the money and the guy that baked all of the bread, those would have been the guys who receive all the glory. But listen, on this day, God says, I can't use people like that. I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use a little lad and I'm not going to use millions of dollars. No, no. In fact, I'm not, going to use, I'm not going to use a whole bakery to feed these people. I'm going to use five loaves of bread and two small fishes. And here's why. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Why does God use people like me and people like you? Why does God use a church like the Cleveland Baptist Church that really is filled with just average, ordinary people? Here's why he does it. He does it so no flesh can glory in his presence. Hey, listen, when God uses people like us, in a church like ours, and he uses maybe our insignificant, lowly little talents and abilities and maybe even finances, when God uses those things, hey, guess what? He gets all of the glory. I wanna say, I wanna say number four, and we'll finish with this. In the Lord's hands, in the Lord's hands, five loaves and two small fish are a feast for 5,000. In verses 10 and 11, the Bible says that he took those things that Andrew was saying, but what are these among so many? Jesus took those things, he gave thanks, and he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. In my hands, five loaves and two small fish are sufficient for me, maybe for a little lad and no one else. But in Christ's hands, these things are sufficient to feed 5,000 people. Here's what we need to know. Three things and we'll be done. Number one, God works in response to man's obedience. Verse number 10, look what, look what he gives instruction. He said, make the men sit down. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Look what it says in verse number 11. And the disciples to them that were set down. Don't you sort of get an idea that this was important to the Lord? I, I think maybe, maybe he wanted them seated so that everybody could see that he was going to feed them with five loaves of bread and two small fish. Because you know how it is in a crowd where a bunch of people are standing. Inevitably, somebody in the back is not going to be able to see it. And I think maybe he, he had them all set down there so that they could all see it with their own eyes what he was going to do. Five loaves, two small fish. Everybody sit down and watch what I'm going to do. And Jesus did it. But he required obedience. God works in response to man's obedience. You see, the one caveat for this miracle was that the men be seated. And the faster they did what Christ demanded, the quicker he got to work in breaking the bread and the fish. The disciples served, only served, according to text, only served those who were seated as he commanded. And can I say this? Listen, it is unreasonable. It is unreasonable for us to expect Christ to meet our needs and provide for us if we are not practicing daily obedience to him in our lives. In other words, yeah, God is interested in your needs. He really is. But I want you to know something. Those who, who have needs and they're, they're being obedient to the Lord and they're following the Lord, I think in some respects, I think those are the people that come to the front of the line as far as the distribution of the meeting of those needs from, from God the Father. Those who are sort of just doing their own thing and going their own way, I think sometimes God is sitting here saying, listen, you get your life in order and you start obeying me and you start doing what I've required that you do and, and, and then we'll have a conversation 
But, but, but here's the caveat. He says, you guys sit down. Everyone needs to be seated. Everyone needs to be seated. But I want you to notice, not only does God work in response to man's obedience, but God works in an orderly fashion. Look in verse number 11. The Bible says, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down. According to Mark chapter six, verses 39 and 40, did you know that the Bible tells us, it gives us some more detail about the story, that they actually sat them down by companies in groups of 50 and 100. So it wasn't like, just everybody sit down where you're at. It was like, okay, let's get 50 over here and let's get 100 over here and let's get 100 over here and get 50 over here. Once you've gotten into a group of 50 or 100, then you sit down. It wasn't everybody sitting down in mass. It was, it was done in an orderly fashion. And then he distributed them uh, through his disciples. He breaks the elements into pieces and he distributes them through his disciples or servants who then serve the hungry crowd. And can I say that God's work may be different and unusual, but it almost always follows a similar pattern. Then here's the pattern. Number one, he requires that we wait on him. He requires we wait on him. By sitting down, they were displaying patience, weren't they? Well, we, we, we could be the first on our, on our way down to the market or on our way down to the restaurant, but he's told us to sit down and we're gonna do it in obedience. We're gonna see what he's going to do to meet this need. They would not be fed, listen, they would not be fed until he was done doing his work. How long would it take, do you suppose? How long would it take to break enough bread and fish to feed 5,000 people? I don't know what was going on there. I don't know, if, I don't know if, if Jesus was the only one responsible for breaking all of these things off or maybe he was delegating to his disciples some of this miraculous power that they were also doing it so they could get it done quicker. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us all of those details. But here's what we know. that We know that they had to sit and they had to wait patiently for him to break the bread, for him to break the fish, and for them to be served. The Bible says in Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Isaiah 40, 31, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Number two, number two, he often feeds us through his called servants. The nourishment flowed from Christ to his disciples, to the men that were seated on the ground waiting patiently for it. I say that God often uses his called servants. I'm talking about pastors and teachers and evangelists, according to Ephesians 4.11. He uses those things, listen, to distribute nourishment and blessing. Why is it important that you come to church? Why is it important that you have spiritual leaders in your lives and mentors and those that are discipling you? Because oftentimes, oftentimes, God meets our spiritual needs through these called servants of his. That's why you need a pastor. That's why even the church needs an evangelist to come in every once in a while and to preach some messages that will help us tremendously as a church family. That's why we need those things. Because God's given those things to the church to grow us, to develop us into what he would have us to be. Final thought that I want to share with you is found in verses 11 and 12. We'll finish with this this morning. When God works, everyone is filled. Would you look in verse number 11? The Bible says, And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Did you notice those two phrases? As much as they would. Verse 12, when they were filled. Do you know, do you know on this day, it really was a feast. This, this wasn't just a sample this wasn't just, you know, just a trial. You get just a, just a little bit of bread and just a little bit of fish, just enough to, you know, just to put it on your tongue so that you can know. No, this was a feast for 5,000 people. And listen, when God works, when God works in this way, everyone is filled. 
Christ's supply wasn't just a, a sample. It wasn't just a bite. No, no, his supply filled them all and there were no leftovers. Now, this guy should say there were leftovers. You know, there are some, listen, there are some that come today that are empty. You've never sat at God's banquet table. He's never fed you, but he longs to do so. See, sin in the flesh leave us empty and unsatisfied. Christ's power and his blood leaves us full and satisfied. Listen, each miracle was designed to tell us that he was who he claimed to be. He is the Savior sent by God. His miracles proclaim he is who he he proclaimed himself to be. And his miracles also, listen, they're faith builders for us who are his people because we sit and we say, listen, if God can feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, what can he do with the problem that I'm facing today? If I'll just give it to him, or I don't know how you're gonna work, I don't know what you're gonna do, but I trust you, I believe in you. My, what God can do. Will you look to him and trust him today? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment. Thank you so much for being here this morning.